When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Good morning, and welcome to Way Too Early on this Tuesday, December 20th. I'm Jonathan Lemire. Thanks for starting your day with us. We'll begin with the historic criminal referrals against former President Donald Trump from the January 6th committee. It's the first time Congress has ever referred a former president for prosecution, and the committee yesterday recommended that the DOJ prosecute Trump on four charges for his role in the attack on the Capitol. Those charges are obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to make a false statement, and inciting or assisting an insurrection. Here's how committee chairman Benny Thompson and vice chair Liz Cheney opened yesterday's hearing. Beyond our findings, we will also show that evidence we've gathered points to further action beyond the power of this committee or the Congress to help ensure accountability under law. Accountability that can only be found in the criminal justice system. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin laid out the seriousness of the charges and why the former president must be held accountable. The dangerous assault on American constitutional democracy that took place on January 6, 2021, consists of hundreds of individual criminal offenses. Most such crimes are already being prosecuted by the Department of Justice. We proposed to the committee advancing referrals where the gravity of the specific offense, the severity of its actual harm, and the centrality of the offender to the overall design of the unlawful scheme to overthrow the election compel us to speak. Ours is not a system of justice where foot soldiers go to jail and the masterminds and ringleaders get a free pass. The panel also issued a criminal referral for attorney John Eastman, who the committee says was the architect of the plan to pressure then Vice President Mike Pence to reject electoral votes and have fake electors submitted to Congress instead. The committee's referrals do not carry legal weight, and it's unclear if the Justice Department will decide to pursue them. Donald Trump hit back at the committee's referrals yesterday in a series of social media posts. On his fledgling Truth Social platform, the former president warned that the so-called attacks against him will only strengthen his standing, writing, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And in that same post, as well as in a radio interview yesterday, Trump also falsely claimed that he tried to stop the Capitol insurrection in real time. I had tweets put out that were fantastic. I don't know if you saw that, but we had we had uh, on Twitter. I put out statements and I put out other statements that were so beautiful and nobody uses them. Nobody brings it up that they were well read. I even did a uh, documentary, more or less. I did a statement from the lawn on camera 
that was deleted. And it was a, you know, go home and go peacefully and do all of the things. You know that it wasn't even talked about. Essentially, we have uh, all Democrats and Republicans in very poor standing, two of them. I mean, we, the yeah. whole thing. It's a yeah. kangaroo court. What can I say? As a reminder, Trump's Twitter post calling for the, quote, very special people to go home came hours after the attack began. Instead of denouncing the violence immediately, aides have said he was watching it on TV from the White House, rewinding and replaying his favorite parts of the insurrection. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who has called Trump practically and morally responsible for the events of January 6th, issued a simple statement to yesterday's hearing, saying this, the entire nation who knows who is responsible for that day. I don't have any immediate observations. Meanwhile, the committee also referred four Republican members of Congress to the House Ethics Committee for ignoring the panel's subpoenas earlier this year. Those lawmakers were Minority Leader and potential House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Congressman Jim Jordan, who is expected to be the next chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Congressman Andy Biggs of Arizona, as well as Congressman Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. McCarthy has not responded to requests for comment, but others were quick to dismiss the referrals. A spokesperson for Jordan called the committee's move just another partisan and political stunt. A spokesman for Perry said that this was, quote, more games from a petulant and soon to be defunct Cancun court. While Congressman Biggs issued a, start that, a statement that read in part this way, I look forward to reviewing their documents, publishing their lies, and setting the record straight in the 118th Congress. A reminder, of course, GOP about to take control of the House. Those subpoenas likely, these referrals likely go away. At yesterday's hearing, the committee also played new, never before seen testimony from some of Trump's closest advisors. Let's take a listen to former White House Communications Director Hope Hicks as she describes debunked claims of election fraud and tries to get the former president to stop the violence. Being evidence of fraud on a scale that would have impacted the outcome of the election. And I was becoming increasingly concerned that we were damaging, um, we were damaging his legacy. Uh, what did the president say in response to what you just described? He said something along the lines of, um, you know, nobody will care about my legacy if I lose. Um, so that won't matter. Um, the only thing that matters is is winning. When you wrote, I suggested it several times, and it presumably means that the president say something about being nonviolent. He wrote, I suggested it several times Monday and Tuesday, and he refused. Tell us what happened. Um, sure. I, I didn't speak to the president about this directly, but I communicated um, to people like Eric Hirschman um, that it was my view that it was important that the president put out some kind of message in advance of the event. And what was Mr. Hirschman's response? Um, Mr. Hirschman said that he had made the same, you know, recommendation. Um, directly to the president um, and that he had refused. Just so I understand, Mr. Hirschman said that he had already recommended to the president that the president convey a message that people should be peaceful on January 6th and the president had refused to do that? Yes. 
We also heard from former counselor to the president, Kellyanne Conway. She gave new details into how Trump rationalized the violence of that day. There's no doubt that President Trump thought that the actions of the rioters were justified. In the days after January 6th, he spoke to several different advisors. And in those conversations, he minimized the seriousness of the attack. Here is new testimony from another one of President Sr.'s advisors, Kellyanne Conway. You said you talked to the president the next day. Tell us about that conversation on the 7th. Yeah, I don't think it was very long. I just said that was just a terrible day. I'm working on a, a long statement. I said, it's crazy. What did he say? Uh, no, these people are upset. They're very upset. All right, then. Joining us now, political investigations reporter for The Guardian, one of the top journalists on all things January 6th, Hugo Lowe. Hugo, thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, you spoke to a lot of legal experts after yesterday's blockbuster hearing. Uh, what charges do they say prosecutors are most likely to consider against Trump? And remember, these, these are just recommendations, but DOJ is watching. Which ones and why? Yeah, look, I, I spoke to a number of former U.S. attorneys to get a sense of which referrals are most likely to be pursued by the Justice Department. And they overwhelmingly said the most likely is the obstruction of an official proceeding because mm. it's so straightforward. I mean, the, the elements of the offense are pretty much met from the get-go. Basically, that Trump with corrupt intent and the definition of corrupt intent here is being seen as consciousness of wrongdoing, um, basically tried to impede the congressional certification on January 6th. I think, you know, the facts are, are pretty clear that he knew and had been told uh, and the select committee has evidence for this that um, trying to stop the certification was illegal. But he went ahead and tried to do it anyway. And in fact, you know, Eastman was admitting even on January 6th, as the Capitol attack was unfolding, that he knew what he was proposing was illegal and yet still was trying to get the vice president to impede and obstruct the certification. So I think everyone looked at that first statute and thought that was definitely the most likely. The second most likely was probably the conspiracy to defraud. Again, one of the principal referrals from the committee because the conspiracy to defraud statute, um, you don't have to articulate an underlying crime. As long as you are hindering a government function, you effectively meet the elements of that crime. And for that, you know, the select committee pointed to the fake elector scheme uh, where Trump was trying to uh, stop the certification to try and dupe Pence into decertifying Biden slates by producing these fraudulent electors. Um, as for the final two charges, I think kind of prosecutors looked at that and thought, well, you know, these are a little bit trickier. You know, for instance, mm -hmm. with the incitement of an insurrection, it's a big charge, but, uh, you know, there are kind of bigger issues here because there's First Amendment protected activity, there's speech and debate clause, especially to, to say that Trump is part of a conspiracy to incite an insurrection, you would have to overcome those legal standards. And I think uh, the two U.S. attorneys I spoke to yesterday thought that was more unlikely. So, Hugo, we're expecting to get the final report uh, from the committee, likely as soon as tomorrow. That will be, in many ways, its defining legacy. But you spoke to Congressman Jamie Raskin, a member of the committee, yesterday after things wrapped up. What did he have to say about the panel's work writ large? What does he hope the public gets from it? Yeah, look, I caught, I caught up with uh, Mr. Raskin after the hearing, and he, he basically said, look, I think we're in a good place. You know, the committee had good unity at the end, and we were able to put a, a, a good closing on, on our kind of 16 months of the investigation. 
And I think that's really the opinion of the members as well as the staff council on this investigation. You know, I think they really did manage to uncover and present um, in a really compelling way different elements of Trump's plan to overturn this election. Um, I think their greatest gift was showing that there was both a political plan, whether this was with Eastman and, and Pence, um, as well as a more sinister and, and they didn't quite find evidence for this, but a more sinister kind of violence coup plan where there were contacts between the Trump White House and various members who were adjacent to the Proud Boys and the Earth Keepers. And the fact that they presented this in such a compelling way, I think, is going to be the lasting legacy of this committee. Political investigations reporter for The Guardian, Hugo Lowell. I'm sure we'll be speaking to you again later this week. Thank you for being with us this morning. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Second and goal. Dylan again. He's in for the touchdown. Packers running back, A.J. Dillon, rushing for his second touchdown of the game to push Green Bay's lead to double digits in the third quarter of last night's matchup against the Los Angeles Rams. Running back, his running back partner, Aaron Jones, added a seven-yard score at the end of the quarter. The lone touchdown pass by QB Aaron Rodgers. And the Packers kept their slim playoff hopes alive with a 24-12 win. This game, Packers-Rams, the start of the season, looked like it'd be a marquee matchup. Eh, not so much this year. Green Bay, with still two games below 500, Green Bay likely will need to win all of its remaining three games to secure a fourth straight postseason berth. They'll probably need some help as well, uh, but they do take care of the Rams last night. Meanwhile, in Philadelphia, the league-leading Eagles might be missing their starting quarterback for the next two to three weeks after reports that Jalen Hurts suffered a sprain uh, to his shoulder during Saturday's win over the Chicago Bears. While the team does not consider it a long-term injury, it means Philadelphia would need to rely on backup Gardner Minshew for the upcoming Christmas Eve division showdown against the Dallas Cowboys. Boasting an NFL best 13-1 record, the Eagles need just one more win to clinch the NFC East, as well as secure the number one seed in the conference so they can afford to play it safe with Hertz. Let's turn now to the NBA and we'll begin in Oklahoma City. The Thunder tied with the Portland Trailblazers in the final seconds of regulation. Big thing here is where the Thunder catch this. Shea gets it, spins away, baseline shot. Shea puts it in and walks it off in OKC. Kissing the Blazers goodnight. SGA is one of the more unheralded stars in this league and the Thunder beat, beat the buzzer as well as the Blazers. 123 to 121. Let's go to Atlanta now. The Hawks and the Magic for Orlando, snapping the Magic's six-game winning streak last night. Orlando erased a 13-point deficit in the fourth quarter, briefly taking the lead before a pair of decisive free throws in the final seconds helped the Hawks to a 126 to 125 win. To New Orleans, there's Giannis, and he led Milwaukee with a game-high 42 points. Brooke Lopez chipped in 30. The Bucks took care of the Pelicans, 128 to 119. And then on to Philadelphia. The 76ers needed overtime to beat the Toronto Raptors last night. Joel Embiid led the way with 28 points. Tobias Harris scored 21, including a three-pointer at the end of the extra period to put Philly up for good. 
Final score, 104 to 101. That's five straight wins for the 76ers. Today is a national holiday in Argentina as the country celebrates its thrilling World Cup title. The party started early this morning as members of the team, led by Captain Lionel Messi, arrived at the airport right outside Argentina's capital. There he is holding the trophy coming down the airport airline steps. Thousands gathered for a glimpse at the newly crowned champions as they rode an overtop bus swarmed by fans on the highway while traveling to the headquarters of the Argentine Football Association, where they will get a little bit of rest ahead of today's festivities. Probably not much sleep in Argentina today. Time now for the weather. Here's someone else who's not sleeping a lot. <laughs> Meteorologist Angie Lastman here with the forecast. Jonathan, a busy forecast for us as we lead up to Christmas. We're talking cold air in place. It's going to be one that you really want to pay attention to. So here's the, the big picture look. Powerful storm is going to intensify as it moves into the Great Lakes region, the Midwest, and Arctic air swoops in behind it. This blast of extreme cold is going to take shape for the high plains here over the next couple of days and really be long lasting through the holiday weekend. We have damaging winds and blizzard conditions expected in the Midwest. That is going to be travel trouble for many. Flooding rain is possible as we look to the northeast as we get to Thursday and into Friday. And by the way, the south also going to see temperatures below freezing. Orlando could see a temperature of 30 degrees over the next couple of days. So millions in weather alerts. You see why minus 33 for the wind chill in Bismarck right now. As we get into tomorrow, minus 10 for Green Bay. And that cold spread south into Nashville, into the teens. We'll be dealing with that here as we get through the next couple of days. And of course, Christmas will be cold as well, Jonathan. It's uh, maybe a day where you want to get all those activities in today before that bitter cold settles in for all the lower 48. All right, we'll keep an eye on that as the holiday approaches. Angie Lastman, thank you so much. Let's turn now to the developing issues at the southern border. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts has placed a temporary hold on the lower court ruling that would allow Title 42 to expire tomorrow. Roberts' order follows a request by 19 attorneys general yesterday asking for an emergency stay to keep Title 42 in place. First implemented during the pandemic, Title 42 has allowed the United States to expel more than 2 million migrants trying to enter the U.S. at the southern border since March 2020. Justice Roberts has asked both the Biden administration and the groups challenging the policy to file a response to the state's request by this afternoon. Joining us now, immigration policy reporter for The Wall Street Journal, Michelle Hackman. Michelle, good morning. Thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, so this, obviously, there's the people anticipating the Title 42 expiring uh, this week. Chief Justice gives it a little bit of a reprieve, but only a little, saying the Biden administration has until 5 p.m. today to mm -hmm. file its response. What are the next steps in this process? So we don't exactly know, but, <laughs> uh, you know, next steps could be anything from the Supreme Court siding with the lower court, allowing Title 42 to expire. They could side with the states or they could decide to schedule arguments, in which case this could become a Supreme Court case. And we certainly know that there is a fear expressed by uh, members of uh, Democrats and Republicans alike that if Title 42 were to suddenly go away, it would lead to a massive influx at the southern border. Senior White House officials conceding to me in recent days that it would it would be a mess, frankly, and then and a humanitarian crisis. But walk us through what would happen if suddenly the policy were to expire. 
Sure. So the big thing the policy does is, you know, if a migrant walks across the border and says, I want asylum, you know, under normal circumstances, that triggers a process where they have to be allowed into the country. And it takes years to process their asylum claims. Title 42 did this thing where under public health laws, because they were supposedly, you know, a danger uh, uh, during the pandemic, they could just be turned away. And so what's, what people fear is going to happen is that all of these migrants who have been waiting for this policy to expire are going to sort of come at the same time, all ask for asylum, that there are going to be too many people, you know, there's going to be overcrowding in border patrol stations, that border cities are going to be overrun. So I think it's just going to be like a massive logistical challenge that could turn into a humanitarian crisis. And certainly the Republicans are trying to make a uh, political hay out of this. Uh, Michelle, in your reporting, uh, you write that the Biden administration is potentially narrowing in on a plan that combines a number of policies en route to a long-term solution. Tell us about that. Sure. So the way I would describe it is, you know, they're preparing for this policy, obviously, to end first thing tomorrow morning. Um, and they were sort of narrowing in on this new idea of uh, creating these new carrots and new sticks. So, you know, uh, in terms of deterrence, they were looking at actually this Trump era idea that that people call the transit ban. And essentially what that does is it says you are not eligible for asylum if you cross the border illegally and you haven't asked for asylum on your way here. If you pass through Mexico and you didn't ask, then you're ineligible. But they give they're going to actually try to create these alternate routes for people to try to apply, you know, while they're outside the country, fill out a form and say, I'd like to come to the United States and ask for asylum. And then they're even either given sort of a, a, a pass to fly here or an appointment at a land port of entry. All right. Well, we'll certainly look for the Biden administration's response per Justice Roberts by 5 p.m. today. The Wall Street Journal's Michelle Hackman. Thank you so much for joining. Time now for business, and for that, let's bring in CNBC's Juliana Tatelbaum, who joins us live from London. Juliana, great to see you. Stock futures, we just saw them red. They're down this morning after major averages extended losses to start the week. What do we expect today? Is there going to be this so-called Santa Claus rally? Well, John, good morning. So far, it's been a tough start to trade today if you are long the market. We've got global equity markets trading lower, and a lot of this has come after some big news out of Japan overnight. The Bank of Japan, which is the equivalent of the Federal Reserve over in the country, surprised markets by signaling that their ultra-loose monetary policy, ultra-loose uh, low interest rates, that policy regimen may be coming to an end. Japan has been a real outlier uh, compared to other central banks and keeping policy really easy. So the fact that that may be coming to an end is weighing on stock markets. We've got uh, European equity markets trading lower and Japanese markets and the rest of Asia trading lower overnight. In terms of the day ahead, we've got U.S. housing starts and building permits for November to watch out for and some earnings from Nike. Definitely more Grinch than Santa Claus so far. Other more bad news. Home builders <laughs> less confident about their business this month. What do we think? Is this the high inflation forcing potential buyers to pull back and then it's causing an overall slowdown? 
Well, certainly affordability has become a major challenge in the housing market. And the latest survey, the home builder sentiment, dropped for the 12th straight month in December to the lowest level since 2012. Now, there are different trends across the country. In the Northeast, we're seeing sentiment hold up pretty well. It's the strongest there. The weakest in the West, no surprise given how high home prices are there. And ultimately, what is to blame is high mortgage rates. And while rates have dropped recently, they're still about 12 where they were a year ago. So affordability is a big problem. In terms of the year ahead, the NAHB, which provides this sentiment um, information, expects that weaker housing conditions will continue in 2023 2023 before recovering in 2024. And then lastly, Juliana, we just saw footage a few minutes ago of Lionel Messi and the Argentinian team returning uh, to their home country following their World Cup win. But fans looking to buy Messi's jersey Maybe out of luck. Tell us about that. But what a homecoming. I can only imagine the excitement in the air in Argentina. According to the official Adidas website, four versions of the Messi Argentina kits are sold out. The game day pre-match jersey, the Argentina 22 men's home jersey, the Argentina 22 home women's jersey, and the Argentina 22 home authentic jersey. There are still some jerseys floating around there if you do want one and you haven't been able to get your hands on one yet. But they are the basketball-style jersey. And then if you want the Paris Saint-Germain one, which is made by Nike, you could get your hands on that as well. Again, no surprise there, given what a huge moment this is for Argentina. It is the first World Cup title for the country since Diego Maradona and his squad won in 1986. And simply and to do so in thrilling, spectacular fashion. But if you want to get kitted out, you got to find <laughs> an alternative than his official jersey. CNBC's Juliana Talabon, live from London. Thank you for joining. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Hope that they would not bring charges against the former president. I, I don't look, I, as I wrote in my book, I think the president's actions and words on January 6th were reckless. Um, but I don't know that it's criminal. it's criminal to Got take it. bad advice from lawyers. I hope the Justice Department understands the magnitude of the very idea of Sure. indicting a former president of the United States. I think that would be terribly divisive in the country at a time when the American people want to see us heal. Bad advice from lawyers. Former Vice President Mike Pence weighing in on the House Select Committee's decision to refer criminal charges against former President Donald Trump to the Justice Department and making excuses for his former boss. The criminal referrals recommended by the January 6th House Committee don't carry any legal weight, but do represent a significant symbolic rebuke of the former president. And it remains unclear just how closely the special counsel's office in charge of the DOJ's own investigation will follow the path mapped out by the January 6th committee or whether Trump or others will face any criminal charges at all. The New York Times points out that not much is publicly known about any specific charges that the special counsel, Jack Smith, might be considering in a criminal prosecution. And the department is under no obligation to adopt the House Committee's conclusions. 
one charge that both the January 6th committee and DOJ prosecutors have placed at the center of their work is obstruction of an official proceeding before Congress. Prosecutors have already used the obstruction count in nearly 300 criminal cases to describe how the rioters who stormed the Capitol on January 6th disrupted the certification of the election that was taking place there during that joint session of Congress. Joining us now, MSNBC legal analyst, Danny Savalas. So, Danny, we saw the House committee uh, lay it all out there yesterday. We're expecting to get the full report probably tomorrow. Um, what are some potential next steps from DOJ? What's your sense of how they'll evaluate what we all just heard? First, the full report should be interesting because the summary has been released and it's over 100 pages. It is comprehensive. But I expect, Jonathan, that at some point in the near future, the Department of Justice is going to make a point of saying that we are an independent agency within the executive branch. The attorney general is arguably the one cabinet member that exercises a degree of independent judgment more so than other cabinet members. And the reason they need to do that is to drive home the point that, yes, we may appreciate some of the evidence you're offering and thank you for the criminal referral but we need to make this decision on our own because otherwise it will appear to be, if they choose to prosecute, a political prosecution. I, I rather think that the January 6th committee making the referral was a bit of a political stumble. And the reason for that is because there's, it's a no-win situation. If DOJ does choose to prosecute based on that referral, it will appear political. If they decline to prosecute, then it might cast doubt on the January 6th committee's work. And they've done a lot of work, Jonathan. So under that theory that they DOJ, of course, wants to avoid being perceived as political. Might this actually slow things down a little bit? Would the DOJ want to create more space between what we heard from the committee yesterday and their own eventual decision? It could. But remember, you always have the problem of statutes of limitations potentially expiring. Most federal crimes have a statute of limitations of five years. So we're not really approaching that yet. But every day that ticks by, witnesses lose their memory. Maybe they move away. That's the general proposition. But, you know, in a situation like this, DOJ has to consider not just what the uh, January 6th committee has laid out, because I think they've done a great job of creating what we call a prima facie case, uh, a facially positive case, more than likely above 50 percent. But DOJ realizes that's not what they need to convict. They need two more things. They need enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury, maybe up to half of which voted for Trump. Right. And in addition, they need to consider possible defenses. And most of these defenses, Jonathan, are going to revolve around Trump essentially being uh, dumb, for lack of a better word, because the defenses will be, well, I didn't know any better, and I relied on the advice of my attorneys as bad as that advice is. So and even in terms of political ramifications, a charge and a conviction, two very different things, and much harder, of course, to get that conviction. So, Danny, we just rolled through the charges. Uh, do you agree with the assessment that that obstruction of government proceedings is the one most likely uh, that Trump would face were he to be charged with anything at all? Yes, but this obstruction charge is a really interesting one because the statute is a relatively young one. It was enacted as part of Sarbanes-Oxley in the wake of the Enron scandal. When you look at the title of this statute, it is tampering with a witness. And the subsection that we're talking about is anyone who, and I'm paraphrasing, corruptly, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> obstructs an official proceeding. It's a kind of catch-all in the statute that the government loves using because it is very effective. It's kind of intentionally hazy 
easy, and they can use that to secure a conviction. The only intent requirement in that subsection is corruptly with an improper purpose. And if the government can prove that, then they have a case. It's a powerful statute. The government uses it liberally since it's been enacted. And so I can expect that if there are charges, that would be the lead charge because frankly, it's a kind of legal layup in the sense that it's easier than other things like insurrection to prove. A legal layup, but yet one of only several legal fronts where Donald Trump faces legal peril. Oh, yeah. And people close to him suggest that Mar-a-Lago documents case may still be the one they're oh, most, yes. most worried about. MSNBC, Lee Lance, Dan Savalas, always a pleasure, sir. We'll talk to you again soon. When it comes to this year's midterm elections, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade played a significant role in motivating key voting blocks. According to Politico, in the months ahead of the election, campaign strategists, strategists kept making startling finding that abortion hadn't awakened only Democratic voters, it was also actually persuading swing voters. The report found that in many battleground and red-leaning states and districts, especially where Democrats spent millions to keep the issue at the forefront for voters, abortion access played an outsized role, reversing the party's once abysmal outlook. We know they faced historical headwinds going into the midterms and did stunningly well. Joining us now is national political reporter for Politico, one of the authors of that piece, Elena Schneider. Elena, great to see you. Uh, so let's talk about uh, what you found in your reporting. So we got our hands on an exclusive focus group that arguably was the very first piece of Democratic data that came out just two days after Politico obtained the draft opinion in early May that the Supreme Court was going to overturn Roe versus Wade. So this was some of the earliest feedback from voters, and these were undecided women voters in Macomb County and Oakland County, Michigan. So these are two key counties in a battleground state where if Democrats had any hope of holding on to these key races in Michigan, um, Pennsylvania, um, Kansas, for that matter, the Kansas governor's race, that these were the sorts of women that they needed to convince to come out to not only to vote, but to vote for them and to be and to make abortion their top issue. And they were startled by what they found, which was that not only were white college educated women sort of the the demographic that we traditionally think of as abortion being an animating force for them. It wasn't just them who were enraged by this. It was also these women from Macomb County who are don't have a college degree, who are less affluent, for whom economics and cost of living is a very pressing issue, but for whom abortion was even more upsetting and was more motivating for them. So this was this really startling finding that these Democratic strategists found just days after the draft opinion came out to say that not only could they use this as a way to you know boost their own base, but it was actually going to prove to be a really potent, persuasive issue for those undecided voters, too, in some of these key battleground states. Yeah, and there certainly had been that conventional wisdom in the closing stretch of the campaign. The Democrats you know, weren't talking enough about the economy, that that's what would really matter to voters, and certainly a huge deal. But as your reporting finds, abortion rights also, threats to democracy, played a big part as well. Elena, let's shift gears here. Uh, government shutdown, uh, lawmakers trying to avoid it. They have unveiled a $1.7 trillion spending bill. Uh, walk us through the steps that need to be taken to make sure that gets passed and the government stays open. 
Well, I think what's key here is that Republicans obviously are in a position where they're looking ahead, where they're going to be in control of uh, at least one chamber of Congress uh, after this lame duck session here. And so getting the Republicans to sort of not block this and move forward on it is going to be a key part of achieving this. But look, I think that there's an awareness that sort of the dynamics at play, that there's some interest in trying to get this done now, certainly on the Democratic side. And so I think that there's still sort of a willingness to, to get this across the finish line. Otherwise, we wouldn't be even seeing the text of it. We wouldn't be this close. And I think also just generally the the interest in getting home for Christmas uh, is is just as powerful of a motivator for uh, reporters as it is for uh, members of Congress. And so I think that that also certainly plays a role in all of this. Yeah, you can feel the planes warming up at National Airport, getting everyone home for the holidays and getting this deal done. National political reporter for Politico, Elena Schneider, thank you as always for joining us today. And thanks to all of you for getting up way too early with us on this Tuesday morning. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast.